Welcome everybody to this episode of the Aligning 360 podcast. This is episode number eight. And I wanted to start off this episode by reading a poem that I wrote to a friend of mine when she shared with me that her son was going through a very difficult time. And this is what was written. Like links in the chain, we need each other to go the distance, to resurrect the sunken ship that has capsized from careless consideration, the calamity of our claims of separateness. On each of us, the same burden, the potential for suffering, is inevitable. And the longing for the pain to go away. Let us dance and play and laugh and cry and sing for this great heart we carry. The burden of our love and the meaning it brings for us to do better. Be held accountable to what we say matters and begin again. To look that pain square in the eyes and say, I see you. I will not propagate your poison if I can help it. Instead, I will burn and rage and fight and claw my way through the treachery to embrace the beauty of being alive. That pain is something that most people cover up because they don't know how to deal with it. They've oftentimes long forgotten that it's even there or what caused it. In my experience with that pain, it's almost always deep-seated in very early experiences. And there are a lot of psychologists that can verify that in theory. That I don't know too much about. You know, I read about it often and I'm very interested in it because of how it's been useful and applied in my life. I started working with a um, shamanic practitioner going on 10 years. Um, when I met this person, I was 22 years old. Oh, shit, so I guess it's going on 11, almost 12 years. I was 22 years old, and I was in a lot of pain. And it wasn't until that pain sort of reached a crescendo that um, I started to really pay attention to it. From 16 to 20, the majority of my diet consisted of fast food because I was always on the go. I was never at home unless I was showering or sleeping. And oftentimes I wasn't even there to do that. I was doing that at friends' house, friends' houses. So staying on the go, I didn't really have too many options and I also didn't have very much money. So, you know, dollar menus 
were the majority of my nutrition. And I started to around 21, 20, 20 and 21, I started to experience a lot of pain in my body. You know, my back would go out and, and I, and I, you know, couldn't figure out like, what the fuck is happening? There was no correlation to what I was eating and what I was drinking. I started drinking pretty heavily when I was 16 and grew up around um, bar culture people. Most of the people that I was hanging out with at that time were 10 to 20 years older than me. I was working at my cousin's detail shop and they were hard drinking guys, you know, they could, uh, they could throw them back and, and were proud of that. And so me naturally in the second stage of my formative years, that became what I wanted to be good at. And so I got started and I got good at it because, you know, when you're around guys that are 10 to 20 years older than you and you're drinking a lot, you better keep your shit straight, especially if you're underage because, you know, that tends to be frowned upon if you're the adult. So... Those two factors alone were the result of the, you know, the result of those two factors is being in a lot of physical pain, not really having much nutrition and, you know, consuming alcohol on a very regular basis. It was fun. I really enjoyed, you know, a lot of the time, but, you know, Alcohol tends to lower inhibitions and it tends to make one do things that they wouldn't normally do in a sober state. And because I was in such a place of seeking approval, because I was young and my identity hadn't been formed, and the of my earlier experiences of not feeling like I belonged feeling like I was an outcast now I had a home now I had a place that I could be accepted this is where I began to realize the distinction between belonging and being accepted being accepted means I'm externally validated that I'm operating consistent with the expectations of the group belonging is the group expects me to act in accordance with what is my nature who I am and, and that is loved and appreciated. So when I was 20, 21 years old, and I started to experience a lot of numbness, started to experience back pain that would cause me to have to crawl to the bathroom, I started to think, maybe something's up with this. And when I started to work for a company as a field service technician, I would drive a lot of the time. And my arm started going numb when I would drive. My fingers would tingle. And I started to think, maybe something's going on. And what finally got me to go look into it is 
I started to experience um, pretty severe um, short-term memory loss. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't retain a thought. I couldn't, you know, I would be talking in mid-sentence. I would completely lose track of what I was saying. And this would happen just about every single time I would open my mouth. And it started to happen so often that I started to become known for that. I didn't realize it was because I was experiencing such a level of internal anxiety that hadn't made its way into my conscious awareness. That wouldn't be there when I was drinking. When I was drinking, I could be fun-loving. I could be, you know, I could, I could speak clearly. I could laugh and tell jokes, and, you know, it was just a good time. So when I started to see this as a problem, it wasn't even equated to the drinking at that time because drinking was sort of core and central to my identity. But one day I was working and I got a little curious. And I decided I was going to go into a bookstore because I had a lot of downtime sitting in this truck. And this is pre-internet on phones. So I thought, I'm going to go in here and see if I can find a book to read. Before this experience, I really had no interest in reading books. Um, didn't really consider myself to be a smart person in high school because I was so checked out because it was such a fucking boring, felt totally useless and unapplicable in my life that, um, you know, I just didn't realize I didn't like reading what they wanted me to read. I wanted to read what I wanted to read. And so I found a book that jumped out to me, and the book is called Change Your Brain, Change Your Life by Dr. Daniel D. Amen. And I started reading that book. And I started to have a very peculiar experience where that book opened up new ideas in my mind. And I started to learn about brain function and spec scans and um, just how certain areas of the brain can be lit up and how certain areas are not lit up. And that catalyzed a growing uh, that that's really what catalyzed my interest in in reading was just having these opening experiences and finding it deeply interesting. You know, it was like expanding my mind and expanding my understanding, and I could apply it in my life directly. Shortly after that, I went to the chiropractor, and that's when he told me that I have this condition called scoliosis. And he basically told me, he said, man, if I wouldn't have seen you before you walked in here and somebody showed me this x-ray, I would have assumed that this was the x-ray of a 45-year-old man. So that was a bit of a wake-up call. The reading continued. I started to find more books that I was interested in. 
the second book that I bought was a book by Forrest Griffin. Griffin. <laughs> Be ready when the shit goes down. <laughs> that is still to this day one of the funniest books I have ever read. Absolutely hysterical. But it got me to really enjoy reading. And when I started to read more and more and more books, my mind started to open up. My world started to open up. And I started to hone in on the books that I felt I could apply in my life directly and make things better. I came across meditation books. Then I came across more new age metaphysical books. And this is right around the time that my life took a dramatic turn. I was talking to now a longtime friend. We were at a family gathering. And he started telling me, about this work that he's been doing with this um, indigenous shaman. And at that time, I was adamantly against mind-altering substances, or so I thought, because I chewed tobacco and I drank and smoked, but had a strong aversion to cannabis or any other type of mind-altering substance. And so I respectfully declined, but there was a few things that he said in there that caught my attention and piqued my curiosity. So naturally... I went and read books about them. And then he told me about, he, you know, we stayed in contact after that through Facebook. And he sent me a video of a lecture. This guy did, I forget his name now, but the lecture was on the book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And it was essentially linking a lot of um, Christianity to the use of psilocybin and other types of mind-altering substances, but most of which was focused on psilocybin and Amanita muscaria, I believe. It's been a long time. Something about that. Oh, I'll tell you exactly what it was. What it was about that is he started talking about the symbolism of Christmas. Why is there a Santa Claus? Where does that come from? And why the colors? And why the reindeer? And why the, you know, all of that? And I realized, like, I had no idea. It was just sort of what... We did, you know, we have Christmas trees and we talk about Santa Claus and we have presents and all of that. And he started to talk about how the symbolism comes from Siberian shamanism. That these guys would go out into the forest and they would pick Amanita muscaria mushrooms, the red and white magic mushrooms and these amanita muscaria mushrooms would only grow under conifer trees in this particular area because there's something about the symbiotic relationship between the mycelium and those particular types of trees that that's where they grow so they would go out and they would pick them which is where the red and white santa claus comes from and they would have to get there early enough because the reindeer in that area 
also loved to eat these mushrooms. And so the reindeer's flying has to do with the reindeer's tripping on these magic mushrooms. And I thought, okay, if things like that are so um, ubiquitous in this culture and yet completely unnoticed, what else don't I know? I started to question my beliefs about, you know, what, what life is. You know, I started to question the meanings. And that was all it took for me to consider, you know what? Maybe these aversions and these restrictions that I have against these supplements is premature because I realized where they came from was my parents. Those beliefs came from conversations that they had either had with me directly or I had overheard them having with other people. The only examples that I had at that time with anyone that used substances was people that quote-unquote ruin their lives by using those substances. But not alcohol. That didn't count. <laughs> so I started, I decided, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go check this out, see what it's all about. So I went. And it was profoundly eye-opening. And one of the things that came from it was the realization that I had a lot of pain stored in my system. Emotional pain. Mental pain. Physical pain. And spiritual pain. I didn't really have a strong sense of I. I didn't really have a relationship with who I was. Because I was too busy being all of these other people trying to fit into different environments to be accepted because I didn't have an experience of belonging. It's very painful to be disconnected from yourself like that. This started a long journey for me. That was sort of the beginning of my awakening path. Most people don't know that they're carrying around pain because most people don't know who they are. They know who other people have told them to be and they're either in opposition of that or some sort of conflict of that or they're trying to meet that expectation or, you know, like if you look at it culturally, for example, what are you supposed to do? You go to school, you go to college, you get a good job, you work that job, then you retire, then you enjoy your life. That's sort of the cultural overarching narrative that we have. You know, if you want to live a good life, that's what, that's the framework. That's what you do. And, you know, what we're discovering is that that framework is not working for most people. It's putting them in a lot of debt and they're coming out making the same wage that someone that who dropped out of high school can make on their own. And in some cases, 
less. Most people aren't using their degrees at all. I saw that pathway and I thought, there's no fucking way. I'm not going to do that. So I started reading a lot and I started exploring my own internal world. And I went on an adventure. Once I started to realize all the things that I thought were true about life weren't necessarily true, that they were ideas that I had taken and made my own. Only did I realize that those weren't really worth fighting for. I didn't really care if they turned out to be true, because even if they did turn out to be true, it didn't necessarily leave me in a place of fulfillment. And I realized they didn't come from me. Or they didn't come from a internal knowing. So I set out to discover my own way. So what did I do? Here's what happened. I was working in a heavy truck mechanic shop. And I had just gotten yelled at for not having a drop light under the truck with me. And I remember thinking, you know, I was sitting in the cab of this truck and I remember thinking, this really sucks. And I felt afraid to leave because I had all of these things. I had, you know, this truck to pay for, this apartment to pay for, all of these things to maintain. And I just realized that wasn't worth it. I realized that I was holding the keys to my prison cell. And when weighed against the experience that I was having, I didn't really value those things. So I remember saying to myself, I don't know where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do, but it's going to be better than this. And I jumped down out of the truck. I went over to one of the fellow mechanics and I said, hey, I need you to help me load my toolbox up. I punched my time card. I went and got my truck, loaded up my tools, and I left. If I wanted someone to treat me better, I had to start with myself. When I started applying the information that I learned, I, so I, what I did is I sold all of that stuff. I sold my truck. I sold my, all of my guns at the time. I sold um, my tools. I sold pretty much everything, and I went and bought a little $1,000 1992 Toyota Tercel. I eliminated all of my debt, so now I didn't have that weighing on me. And I moved in with my folks. 
and I started reading more and more and more. When I got to the meditation books and I started practicing meditation and I started, you know, listening to guys like Vishen Lakhiani at the time and Mind Valley and um, I forget some of the people because it's been so long. Somewhere in there, I realized that I needed to stop drinking. And somewhere in there, I realized that my whole life was surrounded around drinking because my whole life was surrounded around having fun and, you know, just living out what, you know, what was, what was laid out before me. Not living out any sort of sense of purpose or, or any sense of meaning, but you know, I was in the, the night stage of my development, which was, you know, this is all about fun and adventure. I stopped spending so much time in bars. I started to realize how much money I was spending in bars. I was spending about $200 a weekend in the bar. It's about $800 a month. And when I looked at that and realized like, oh, I could buy a plane ticket for that. If I saved that money, if I didn't go to the bar, I could buy a plane ticket and I could go somewhere new and I could, you know, go on a, a, a real adventure. Because I started realizing everyone that I was around was always telling the same stories again and again and again. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to be telling the same fucking stories again and again and again. Some stories are worth telling. They can be very useful. But the ones that I heard on a regular basis seemed like empty. So I wanted to go on a real adventure. And I wanted life. I, I wanted to find out, you know, if I can do this on my own terms. Where would I want to go? What, what would I want to do? Now the world of possibilities opened up. What kind of possibility do I want to live into? I wanted to go see if life had my back. See if I could use my resourcefulness and my cleverness and all of the things that I'd learned and all of the things that I had been practicing in, in some big way. So what I did is I pulled the seats out of my Toyota Tercel, the passenger seat and the two back seats, which opened up access into the trunk. And I built a platform that was on the same plane as the floor of the trunk, had a little bit of storage area, made it so where I could sleep in my car, and I had everything with me. With my $20 bike rack and my newly purchased bike that I got off of Craigslist for like $75, I loaded my car and with $250 in my pocket, I drove down to the Florida Keys because that was the place that called to me for whatever reason. You know, at this time, I was writing things down, doing manifesting journals and, you know, vision boards and all of that stuff. 
and I was going to meet um, what was told to me by a channeled entity that I used to go listen to at this little spiritual bookstore that was some kind of soulmate. This is pretty early on, you know, so I was really interested in these kinds of things. Now they don't really hold that much gravity for me anymore, but at the time it was, you know, it was a big thing. So I wrote it all down. Oh, these are the qualities. This is what she looks like. This is, you know, doing all the visualization and all of that stuff. And I drove down there and I slept in my car for about two and a half weeks. Just following my intuition. Looking for the good omens that I learned from the alchemist. Feeling the energy that I'd learned from reading the Celestine prophecy. When someone meets your eye, perhaps that's someone that you're destined to meet. All of these books, you know, they were, they were all sort of floating around as a swirling, you know, pool of new possibilities that I'd never explored. And so I wanted to, I wanted to see if there was any legitimacy to it. turns out there was I ended up finding a health food store one of the only health food stores from Key Largo to Key West called Good Food Conspiracy they had little crystals and gems and essential oils and books they had kombucha, which is the first time I had ever heard of kombucha. This is back in 2011. And I will never forget the first time I tasted it. I thought, what in the fuck do people drink this for? <laughs> it tasted so bad to me. <laughs> but I was on this adventure, and I was, I was there to try new things. And they had a little vegan... You know, they always had vegan soups and vegetarian soups and, you know, smoothies and all of this stuff. And I started to become really interested in health food. I started to think like, huh, maybe this is what my body needs. You know, and I started to get some actual nutrition. And I started to feel like a little bit better and like, holy shit, you know. And I started to become really um, obsessed with the idea that I could heal my scoliosis in a um, holistic way. So I'm in good food conspiracy and I'm telling these people, you know, what I'm up to and why I'm there and, you know, this sort of little spiritual journey that I'm on. And they go, oh, you should go check out this place that I won't name because they want it to be a little secret. And I said, you know, I'll be honest with you. That sounds like a hippie commune, and I don't know that I'm interested in that. And she kind of laughed, and she said, well, you're right. It is kind of a hippie commune, and, you know, yeah, you don't have to go, you know, but if you want to. It's there, and let them know that we sent you. And I said, okay. Slept in my car for two or three more nights. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to go check it out. So that's what I did. And I went down, and I showed up, and I pulled in, and The next thing I know, I'm being welcomed up to this little outdoor kitchen where they're cooking spaghetti and meatballs and drinking red wine. And they're like, hey, do you want to join us for dinner? Jay's not here right now, but he should be back sometime soon. 
he's the one that will give the final say whether or not you can stay. And I said, great. So we go up and I'm talking with them and having some red wine. Jay shows up, walks up to me, shakes my hand and laughs and he goes, oh yeah, you can stay. <laughs> Takes one to no one is what he said. <laughs> I still to this day can only assume what he meant by that. But I didn't really care at the time because it allowed me to stay. And I think there was some sort of, you know, unspoken understanding that we both kind of had. He was a 60-year-old former salesman that was making about 10 grand a month. And he decided to leave all that behind, buy a little VW bus, and do his own little spiritual journey. I remember he would smoke weed and meditate in his little VW bus. <laughs> he was such a funny guy. <laughs> he was one of he was one of the funniest people I have ever run into. <laughs> Just some of the things that that guy said and did. Fucking A. So I'm there and, you know, now I'm, I'm, I have a place to stay and I set up a tent and we have this outdoor kitchen and sleeping outside and, you know, all I had to do was work. I want to say it was like five hours a week or maybe one hour a week or something like that. It was nothing. It was nothing. And uh, I could stay there. Mind you, some of the KOA campgrounds and things like that down there, even for primitive camping, was like $60 a night. So I was like, holy shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. This place was a fully um, sustainable off-grid. You know, they had all of their own water. They had solar. They had, you know, and everybody just kind of like hung out there. And some people ran their own business. And some people had jobs. And some people didn't. I hung out for about two or three weeks and I got extremely bored. It was all new and I was doing what I was doing. But, you know, it was a lot of idle time. I went and started working at a kid's summer camp in their kitchen. making more money down there than I was as a heavy truck mechanic back in Kansas City. Which is kind of funny, you know. I left that place saying, I don't know where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do, but I know it's going to be better than this. And I got to walk out every single night from the end of my shift and see just the most spectacular sunsets over the ocean. It was so surreal. I would ride my bike there to save money. It was like maybe two miles and everything is flat in the key, so it's like super simple. You could ride a bike pretty much everywhere. All of this came through envisioning what I what I desired. And it all happened. All of it, like to a T. I met this woman. And I felt like I knew her long before she knew me. And that's where it breaks down. <laughs> that initiated me. We, we, you know, started seeing each other. And it was a very strange set of circumstances that I almost feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't tell you the story. You know, me and... One of my buddies that I started to hang out with from work went out and we were playing pool and drinking like $2 yinglings. 
and I expected there to be, you know, just loads of women down in the Keys, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's like nine to one men to women. So anytime any relatively attractive woman shows up anywhere, she is immediately the center of attention. And sometimes that attention is not, you can tell, what she wants. So we're in there playing pool, and some fellow, uh, you know, kids' summer camp volunteers or counselors um, come in from a neighboring camp up the way. We're all about the same age, and we're all hanging out and laughing and having a good time. And I can see my buddy Colin is interested in this chick. So they're talking, and I'm just playing pool and leaving them be. And, you know, we end up leaving, and nothing really comes of it. You know, no numbers were exchanged or anything like that. And uh, we part ways. And, you know, Colin and I, he takes me back, and he goes home, and that was that. Well, about a week later, I come back to where I'm staying, and I see that there's a note on the dry erase board. And it says, hey, Jay, I'd love to know if I could set up my tent here, signed, this woman. And I go, I know that's her. Sure as shit, it was her. She shows up. And immediately I have all of these like romantic idealism, you know, because here it is, it's all happening, it's all being manifested, it's all like, you know, what a crazy set of synchronicities and coincidences and you know at the time it's like there's no such thing as quite this you know this is all happening for a reason you know young in my understanding but nevertheless i'm relating to her as this person that i'm supposed to meet and she has all of the characteristics We start seeing each other. My young understanding, my very idealistic understanding of what was going on, and my inability to um, handle things. Let's say, I want to. I want to tell you this story. In the way that will that that actually expresses how it was. I didn't have a capacity to show up for that relationship, and she didn't have a capacity to show up for that relationship, and that relationship simply was what it was. It felt like it was a fatal attraction. I'm going to bring this back around to the pain, you know, and and what to do about that. But first, you know, what what caused the pain was a, um, for lack of better terms, an an identity crisis. This is where the idealism of spirituality started to get very real. And it started to draw up all kinds of, um, things deep within my subconscious It started to, it stopped being fun. This is what tends to happen when idealism meets reality. It tends to be harsh. I told Colin about what was going on and I said, hey man, this chick showed up. He knew why I was there. He knew I I was there knowing that I was there to meet someone. And he was like, dude, do your thing. It's all good. I thought she was gone forever, so, you know. Well, then the the tables turned. They started to have a growing interest in one another. And we weren't really, you know, in any sort of fixed relationship, but feelings of 
anger and jealousy and betrayal and things like that started to show up. And now I could no longer hold the persona of someone on this positive love and light journey because the demons were starting to uh, emerge. That all happened also right around the same time that I started to become consciously aware of this anxiety that was throughout my body. Remember how I was telling you that I couldn't hold my train of thought? I would lose access to what I was saying? It was because of this anxiety, this hypertension, this disconnection from the sense of I. Losing grounding, I started to feel like I was having a existential crisis because now, you know, all of the barriers between all of the compartmentalized identities that I had, you know, I would be this way with these people over here and this way with these people over here and this way with these people over here. And I remember thinking, like, which one of these am I? This is a kind of spiritual initiation. And it usually comes through some sort of crisis. In my case, it was an identity crisis. I had no inner authority within myself. I was sort of on the surface being all of these different, wearing all of these different masks, but disconnected from the mask maker. This is when astrology started to come into view very strong because there was thankfully this woman named Kate who was a retired psychologist, who was very into astrology. She started working with me just as, I don't know, a favor. She would let me come down and talk with her. And I think it's called EMDR. She had these little, you know, vibrating buzzers that you'd hold in your hands. And it's supposed to um, harmonize the left and right hemispheres of the brain and you share what's going on and you know you hold these electrodes and boom, 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 boom. and it was it was very helpful and she started to read to me about astrology and she goes when's her birthday you know the woman that I'm having this experience with and she goes yeah it's as I expected it's a fatal attraction And so that old adage of be careful what you wish for, you know, it's like, even though this woman had all of the characteristics of what I thought that I wanted, the depth of my understanding of my own desire and what is really there, I had no, no real access to any depth because I didn't know myself at that level yet. So I got exactly what I was looking for, but what I was looking for wasn't exactly what I truly wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and that started to catalyze the path. You know, that's when that's when trouble arose and that's when I had to come back home. You know, like the Pinocchio story, I wasn't quite yet a full, a real boy. Before I went to Pleasure Island and I was being a braying jackass. It gave me access to my pain. It's the being able to show up truly and honestly when those kinds of things happen. You know, it's like when we start to feel however we feel. To ask ourselves, where is this coming from? It was right around the time that I got back home that I was introduced to the Mankind Project and I started doing men's work all on um, basically em embracing the shadow. The shadow is those parts of ourselves that we repress, we deny, we hide, and we project.
I started to sift through my pain. Because most people are expressing the characteristics of their shadow, the distortions from their false self, their created sense of self-image, that for, in my experience, a lot of men hide their true feelings because their true feelings aren't really respected or cared about. You have to, you know, live into the cultural expectations of the persona of what it means to be a man, of what it means to be a man. Most men are living lives of quiet desperation, as Henry David Thoreau writes about. My jiu-jitsu instructor one time told me that most men are found in bathrooms when they've died from heart attacks. They get up and go be alone. They don't want people to worry. Whether they're at home or in a restaurant or wherever. Those experiences started to bring up all kinds of things from my childhood, the disconnection that I felt like from my father, which is the reason why I went out seeking approval, drinking with all of these guys anyway. I was looking for a father figure. I had no capacity at that time to father myself. This is all the Pinocchio archetype. The process of becoming a real boy instead of being a puppet pulled by your impulse gratifications and whatever little whim we might have. To live a conscious existence means addressing the painful parts of our identity. Reclaiming who we truly are. That might be the hardest thing for most people to do, which is why many will be called and few will be chosen. Because it really takes something. It takes sincerity. To show up in earnest and be truthful about what we're dealing with and finding an appropriate place to do so. We don't necessarily have these places in place yet. One teacher that I worked with, one of the things that he would say is, you are run by what you can't share. It owns you. And until you take ownership of it, it will always be running some unconscious program, programmed pattern. And you'll never fully be able to be yourself. So how do you deal with your pain? Are you even aware of it? Where does it come from? Do you have anyone that you can share that with? This is why community is essential. We need people in our lives that we can share those things with in a safe way. To go the distance, to resurrect the sunken ship that is capsized from careless consideration the calamity of our claims of separateness. On each of us, the same burden, the potential for suffering is inevitable. 
and the longing for the pain to go away. Let us dance and play and laugh and cry and sing for this great heart we carry. The burden of our love and the meaning it brings for us to do better, be held accountable to what we say matters, and begin again to look that square in the eyes and say, I see you pain. I will not propagate your poison if I can help it. Instead, I will burn and rage and fight and claw my way through the treachery to embrace the beauty of being alive. Thank you all for listening.